You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today with special guest host, Graham Richardson. Happy Monday, everyone. I am Graham Richardson. I hope you had a good weekend. Um, I don't know if it's been a good weekend for politics. We're going to talk about this Christian Freeland thing, and a lot of people are talking about it, and it has many different facets to it, but um, I think I think in the end it's a pr- it's a pretty simple story. Um, I-, I I think that this has become the norm for a lot of people in politics, and particularly for women. And um, if you haven't heard this, I mean, Christian Freeland grew up in Northwest Alberta in the Grand Prairie area. Uh, she's there at City Hall, and she gets cornered as she's walking into a an elevator with her several of her aides, all of them women, by a very angry large man who um, confronts her. And here's some of it bleeped out. Christia. Yes. What the f*** are you doing in Alberta? You f***ing traitorous Get the f*** out of this province. You don't belong here. You're a f***ing traitor. You f- that is the tone. Afterwards in the parking lot, she was called other names. There has been wide reaction to this. Um, Politicians of all stripes have condemned this. And there has been a vigorous condemnation from the prime minister, um, Pierre Polyev, the presumptive um, front runner of the conservative leadership race. Um, He was criticized for not saying enough quickly. He did respond. Um, on Vancouver Island late yesterday. Here's what he had to say. Well, it's uh, absolutely unacceptable, and I can relate, of course, because um, I've been the subject of so much online harassment and abuse. My wife has received so much uh, horrific material directly to her social media account that we've had to hire a private security firm uh, to protect our family against uh, all of that abuse. So unfortunately, uh, this is all too common. So you can hear there, I mean, he condemns it and says this has become all too common. Um, this is part of politics now. And and I, I'm just wondering your opinion on this, whether this is part of politics now. Like, why is this part of politics now? Why is it acceptable or normal? And I appreciate he said it was unacceptable. Um, and I appreciate that he said that he and his wife have been targeted as well. But text us at 71010. Let us know why you think this has become more common in Canadian politics. I don't accept that social media has amplified this, that this has always been around. Listen to that person's tone as he corners the deputy prime minister and walks towards her as she backs into the elevator. That is, there's nothing normal about that kind of discourse. Years ago, I was covering Stephen Harper as a parliamentary reporter. We would go into, generally speaking, conservative gatherings with the prime minister. And a lot of the partisans gathered there would hiss and boo because we were asking questions they didn't like. That is one thing. That, I would say, generally speaking, on most sides, but generally speaking, the conservative side, they're more suspicious of media. Generally, they don't like media questioning their leaders more than other parties. I'm not suggesting that 
you know, liberals don't get pissed off too. They do. Um, that became kind of normal, I would say, 15 years ago, where partisans would be hissing and sort of targeting reporters. That's not this. That's not this. This is at City Hall in Grand Prairie, cornered into an elevator, and you heard what he said. And then he celebrated it afterwards, uh, almost like he'd cornered a, a rock star. Yesterday, I tweeted out the mayor of Calgary her reaction to this. And I, um, I was shocked by what, by what she had to say, Jody Gondick, about what she went through in response to this. And I'm going to go through a bit of it. We're going to have Lisa Raid on later in the program to talk about this. And, and look, I know what's out there right now. I know even in response to tweets about this, that the feeling is that everybody's piling on here and saying how awful this is because it was the liberal deputy prime minister and conservatives have been attacked too. And we don't do anything about that. I'm going to put it to you this way. I want to ask Lisa Raitt about that when she was in cabinet. If she was cornered like that by someone, does she think it would have got this coverage? And I think she would say absolutely it would. I, I just don't accept that there is this double standard when a politician gets attacked or when there's something absolutely outrageous that happens and people th view it through the partisan lens. I'm sorry. This is not a partisan issue. This is not. This is... Why are public officials facing this kind of hate and it's hate regularly now, more and more than ever before? You can blame Trudeau. You can say it's, it's his fault because he's at 30% and he's running basically a city national government with only seats in big cities. He's ignoring people in places like Grand Prairie and he's doing so at his own risk. That's an argument we can have and a debate we can have. But I'm sorry, that does not justify this kind of crap. And that's what it is. It's crap. Here's the mayor of Calgary on Twitter yesterday. I've been asked by some people why I haven't responded to the assault on our deputy prime minister, her words. To be blunt, I had to sit with my thoughts for a couple of days because this incident is not isolated. It brings up too much pain and yes, fear. Why on earth would I openly state that I feel fear after seeing that horrible video? Because you need to hear what actually happens to women after something like this. We've been conditioned to never show fear, but I think it's high time we talk about it. I'll explain what I mean. With some experience I've had as a candidate and political figure in this 2017 civic election, I had a man call and tell me he knew where I lived and I should watch out. He then confronted me in person at a public debate. He was 6'2", 200 pounds. In an open area packed with people, he loomed over me to hiss that he made the call and he would make sure I lost the election. He then sat in the front row leering at me for the whole event. I compartmentalized the fear, cleared my head, and crushed the debate. This is part of what she says. I just want to stop halfway through this. There's nothing normal about that. That's stalking. That's harassment. 
And she doesn't go into whether police were involved and why he wasn't removed. But put yourself in her shoes. She's running for mayor. And this guy has called her and he comes up and hisses in her ear two minutes before the debate or whatever, just before the debate. I made that call. You're going to lose. And then he sits there and and, and glares at her through the debate. What would you do? I'm not going to question what she did. I mean, she basically sucked it up and got on with it and didn't tell anybody about it until this video came out of Christian Freeland. Here's another one. The mayor goes on. Minutes before the UFC Merrill debate in 2021, the Western Standard published a story, but used my kid's name instead of mine. My blood ran cold. Why would they make a mistake like that? Were they planning to write something about my family? Once again, I compartmentalized the fear and went into the debate. I have no idea how I responded to anything because my mind was scared for my family. She goes on. Then in January 2022, protesters came to my home to air grievances over pandemic measures. Unbeknownst to me, they stood on my driveway until I opened the garage door. When they scurried to the street, my mother was with me. We closed the door and quickly went back inside. Someone brought a costume horse head to her driveway and left a the head of a costume horse on her driveway. So, you know, none of that's normal. That doesn't happen in politics. That's not the, uh, you know, the ugly business, the tough business of politics. Something has changed. On the Evan Solomon Show, when we come back, I'm glad you're here. Keep your texts coming about this. We're going to talk to Lisa Raitt. What What does a senior woman in politics think about this? It's the Evan Solomon Show with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson in for Evan. Hope you're having a good day. We're talking about the Friday incident. Christopher Freeland cornered in a in a uh, Grand Prairie elevator by a very angry man threatening her, telling her to get out of the province. Here's what the prime minister had to say about it the yesterday. And this kind of cowardly behavior threatens and undermines our democracy and our values of openness and respect upon which Canada was built. As leaders, we need to call this out and take a united stance against it. Many people online pointing out that when he talks about respect for others who people disagree with, he doesn't have standing because they call him the divider-in-chief. Brian Lilly's column in the Sun Papers today addresses that directly. Uh, Lots of people feel Trudeau is partly to blame for this kind of tone that's out there, particularly in places where liberals are not popular. Here again is the mayor of Calgary read out her tweets. Here's her reaction to what happened to Christian Freeland. You don't treat people like that. You just don't treat anybody like that. You can have an opinion. Do not corner and tower over someone and threaten them in that manner. I don't know how many more ways to say that. I don't know how many more times we need to say that. Lisa Raitt has been in the thick of it um, uh, as a cabinet minister in the Harper government, also outspoken about uh, women in politics and how um, things have, uh, I would say, intensified over the last few years. I don't know if Ms. Mm-hmm. Raitt would agree with me, but uh, she joins me now. Thanks for coming on. Hey, Graham. Thanks. No problem. What do you, what did you make of this? Um, and, and I know you've seen a lot of the reaction here and, mm-hmm. and the, the narrative that, uh, that, that this is just about you know, I, I don't know, like, I, I don't know how anybody can look at that and say 
that that's part of politics? Or is it part of politics now? What's your take? You know what's really messed up about this whole thing? This isn't videotape of a sympathetic bystander to the Liberal Party of Canada or Christia Freeland. It's not a member of her staff who took the video and posted it. It's the perpetrator who did it. Mm. And, and full of pride. Look what I did. And I think that's the part that really catches my attention. It is the assumption that the behavior that he that he utilized deliberately to stalk and intimidate her is so acceptable, it's going to be valued and praised within social media. That is the part I can't get my head around. That's the part that we should be talking about. I mean, thank you, Prime Minister, for your thoughts on it. I appreciate it, but it's not about him. This right. isn't about him. So, like, let's, let's, let's not talk about him. Let's talk about the fact that she was pinned into an elevator with female staff, uh, and g- good for them for their composure, by the way. Amazing. I'm sure they were shaking afterwards, or they probably laughed about it, and then it sunk in later when their parents called and said, you know, are you okay? Right. Um, but they posted it. This group posted it, and that's how we found out about it. So, yeah, we've got a problem. We've got a problem because this is not acceptable. And now we're all debating whether or not it's acceptable and who's really to blame. Don't care. This is really wrong. Well, this is it. This is this is where, you know, okay, then, you know, you see the social media uh, camps divide again and, and basically yeah. say this is all about that or this is all about the And 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 it's it's devaluing the 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 absolutely offensive and arguably criminal behavior where like like, you know, I'm not a cop, but when you're that size and you're backing people in and you're saying those kinds of things, um, you know, I, I, I won't go there. But I, I mean, that is not by any stretch a normal thing in our political discourse. It has become normal in other parts of uh, the world, I think, as people get more and more divided. And but but or, or, or is it do you think that we're seeing more of this? Why are we seeing more of this from your perspective? So a confrontation happens in, in, in all over the years, right? So I've yes. been confronted in my political life. Lots of other people have been confronted in their political life. Sometimes it gets a little bit scary, uh, but not to the point where people are searching you out, videotaping it with the intention of putting it up in order to, I don't know, be, be given attaboys and maybe getting more people to do exactly the same kind of thing. That's yeah. the big difference. That's, that's how we have progressed. And for me, the danger is copycat, having more people think, oh, I'm going to get more likes or I'm going to the cause, right? I'm going to do this for the cause. And it it comes both ways. Years ago, if you recall, Gail Shea got pied when she was making, uh, Gail Shea was a cabinet minister with me from Prince Edward Island. Again, diminutive woman, like 4'11", if she's lucky. And she got pied at an event where she was making an announcement. And, you know, she kind of shrugged it off. But then you think, okay, um, that's pretty bad too. You that's a, that's enough. a physical assault. That's yeah, a physical you get assault. close enough, and yeah. it was a pie, but people kind of laughed it off, and and uh, you know, it's just it has happened in the past. It's happening now, but the intent around it is a little bit more scary for me now. It's the it's the getting in your face and filming your reactions so that you can put it on TikTok. That's Am- what worries me. Amplification of social media. Bingo. Do you it, yeah. do you accept? the notion that has been out there, well, since Friday and for many, many months now, that that it is um, more dangerous and different for high-profile prof- women politicians? Um, I think politicians in general. I think women 
in general, not just politicians, but any woman with a strong opinion that communicates it in an open kind of way. Fair game. I, I think about the the female racialized journalists who are her being attacked, you know, since beginning of August. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think that it's becoming more and more accept. It, let me put it this way. I think it's always happened, Graham, but now they they want to get out the fact that they're doing it, they being the perpetrators, mm. like they're proud of it. Society has to rise up and say, whoa, hang on a second. Like, you know, this isn't cool, guys. And, and you know, don't put this stuff up and don't do this. Like, there has to be ramifications. And what what about, um, what about the reaction to it? Uh, look, it's, it's too simple to say, you know, and I, I get fatigued with, you know, Polyev didn't condemn it quickly enough, and it was mostly liberals condemning it. I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't accept that. I think, I think a lot of people uh, condemned it. Why do you think, though? Um, I'm trying to be careful here because uh, why do you think it is arguably, and maybe I'm wrong, more difficult for conser- Is it more difficult for conservatives to call this behavior out? I saw James Moore. I know you've been out. I've saw, I've seen other people, but it feels like there is more vigorous condemnation from other parties or do you not accept that premise from me? The whole tallying of who said what quickly enough, that's politicizing the issue. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. You know, and and I hear what you're saying. I do. I do. I hear what you're saying and I'm not condemning it, but if that's the first thing you leap to is to determine how quickly someone responds or if they have a similar story, then we're, we're doing the same kind of crap. Yeah, that's that true. Other people are. And what it does is it feeds into if you attack another person because they're not doing what you expect them to do in this behavior, then you're just giving fire to the to the quote unquote uh, bad guys who are perpetrating the, the violence and egging them on. And and that's the issue. It's become a this has become a politicized matter. And it, it's unfortunate. So Pierre comes out and he talks about the fact that his wife is receiving threats and needs security. Peter McKay had the same thing happen to his family when he ran for leader. Um, and that's, you know, that's conservative, yes. <laughs> conservative on conservative crime kind of thing. You know, it's, um, well, and I guess my point being my question about it is, and I hear you on that. And I accept what you're saying. I think the liberals are bigger targets, particularly in that part of the country where the support is so overwhelmingly with the conservatives and so overwhelmingly against liberals that we see it more maybe there and in rural rural parts where they are targeted. Some people out there say we cover it more because it's a sympathetic mm-hmm. slant. I don't accept that. When the deputy prime minister is cornered like that, it's news. There's nothing you can do about that except cover it. 100%. And people out here, I'm, I'm sitting right now in Cape Breton, Graham, and you know, people noticed it and talked about it. And they went to the human side of it. They never once said, oh, that's a big conservative guy, no. a poly of supporter going and going after this, this cabinet minister is my God, look at that guy. What a moron. And so, you know, that, why would he do something like that? And, and why was the woman with him taping it? And why are they behaving like that? They're ascribing it to individuals as opposed to pumping it up to this must be a conservative problem or this must be a poly of problem. And that's where we get into dangerous territory, because then you're using the situation to ascribe motive. Lisa Raitt, always great to talk to you. Thank you for this. Thanks, Graham. Take care. Have a good day. You too. Bye.
This is the Evan Solomon Show. Sitting in for Evan, here's Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson in for Evan. Hope you're having a good day. Um, we are talking. I'm taking your texts and your calls, actually. Give us a call, 1-855-633-1010, 1-855-633-1010, about um, what happened in northern Alberta to Christian Freeland on Friday. Yes, we're talking about it because a lot of people are talking about it. And a lot of different takes on it. You think, you honestly think the Christopher Freeland incident wasn't staged? That's one texture. Why would you let someone in that shirt into that area not be approached by a security and left to have their rant? The hatred and division is normal in Trudeau's Canada. Look at the smirk on her face in the elevator. That's another text. I, I can't I can't really have a discussion with you if you think that it's staged. Yeah, the liberals did this, did this on purpose. Like, come on. Like, you know, like it's just it's just ridiculous. It's, uh, you know, I shouldn't have read that text because it gets me going. It gets me going. <laughs> Here's some more texts. There's definitely been a huge decline in political discourse. We should be able to disagree with a person's political leanings and still respect the individual as a person. And we wonder why a lot of people would never put their name in a hat. Al. You know what, Al? We've done a story. I'm in, I'm in Ottawa. We've done a story in eastern Ontario, uh, the surrounding area, about 17, 16 to 17 mayors who are running uncontested in October. People are not running because of this crap. People are not putting their name forward. They are turning away from politics because of this. Uh, there's other reasons. They don't, you know, maybe the money's not enough or they've got family reasons. A huge part of that is that people don't want to put up with this kind of scrutiny and harassment. In the city of Ottawa, there are 10 councillors in wards who are not running. And many of them have said, off the record, because they don't want to be targets again, the convoy. They don't want to deal with the fallout from the convoy and what it did to them as politicians. And all of it, the impact of it, the harassment, the online scrutiny, all of it, it's a very, very ugly business now. And I think that is a huge part of what we're seeing here and the Christopher Freeland video captures it. I've never seen my country so divided, region against region. Living in Ontario, I don't feel this alienation. Perhaps if I lived in Alberta or Saskatchewan, I might feel differently. The Prime Minister seems incapable of bringing Canadians together. He's never met a wedge issue he doesn't use. It doesn't help that there is no opposition government due to the Liberal NDP coalition. Okay, there's no opposition because of that, or less opposition because of that... Uh, uh, because of that agreement. We have a federal government accountable to no one. This isn't how democracy works. This is absence of democracy, and it's leading to unprecedented anger. That is something I can engage with. This government, if you go down Yonge Street, from north of Toronto all the way to downtown, there are five cabinet ministers. This is a city of Canada government. <laughs> and whether it's Vancouver, parts of Montreal, Toronto, parts of Ottawa, they are urban focused and they are urban successful. 
and they are somewhat suburban successful because you can't you can't be successful in Canada as a government um, if you don't have some suburban support. He has some of that. But there are wide swaths of the country. I was in BC last summer seeing an old friend in the interior of BC, very conservative part of the province. And he just looked at me and says, like, do people actually think this guy's a good prime minister? And, and like, he, he was being honest, like, I can't believe that people are still voting for him, like, after everything that's happened. And it was not, it was not the normal, I'm normally conservative, I'm sick of the liberals, boy, I wish some other people would come on board. He was actually flabbergasted that that Trudeau was still an option for wide swaths of the country, or at least wide swaths of the country where there are enough seats that he can win. And the other thing is to keep in mind, as you, as some of you out there say that, oh, he's getting an easy ride in the mainstream media and all his, you know, lackeys in the mainstream media, please. This guy is at 31, 30% with a minority government, you know, like, SNC-Lavalin, Jody Wilson-Raybould, Afghanistan chaos pullout, uh, the trip to India, the trip to Tofino. I guess we were really easy on Trudeau on those issues, all driven by the mainstream media. Give me a break. Give me a break. The problem with that line is that a lot of people just can't get over the fact that their preferable party keeps losing and they're looking for someone to blame. Like, this guy in the shirt screaming at Christopher Freeland, organize and take them out. Like, like use the system to take them out. Defeat them at the polls. Lots of people agree with you. And I guess that's what the Conservative Leadership Convention that's coming up is going to be all about. Um, we're going to go to the phones. We've got Nick in Montreal who's on the line. is being very patient as I rant away here. Um, Nick, what is your take on what happened in Alberta to the Deputy Prime Minister? I get, you know, I don't like what happened. You know, it's not should not have happened. But you know, the problem is right now is that the people all over the country are frustrated. I mean, they're frustrated with the Liberal Party. They have yeah. a minority government, and the problem right now is Trudeau talks about democracy. Okay, why talk about democracy? Let's put it this way: let the people vote, like uh, Evan says. Okay, so what's happening when you have a minority government? What do you do if Trudeau wants to get four years? You go, you have an election. But what did he do? People are frustrated right now because uh, I live in Montreal. That's uh, uh, Trudeau is in my riding Papineau. He used to walk in the street every day, almost uh, every four, five, six months, come yep. and visit the people. Yep. Now he can't do that because people are yelling at him. And like, what happened to Friedland? It's not only what happened to Friedland because they're frustrated. They want the democracy back. So yeah. they want, the Greens want to vote the next prime minister in, not by joining the two parties. That is dictatorship. Okay. Nick, thanks for the call. I appreciate that. I I will point out, uh, Nick's right. Like, the tone has changed. The frustration is palpable. I've never seen politics like this. I've been at this 30 years, almost 30 years. I have never seen the body politic, both civilian and participants, I've never seen it so nasty, so, so angry. And there's good reason for that, and we're not alone. You look at the United States and other Western democracies, a lot of people are feeling this. Um, I, I think I take what he says about the prime minister that I don't want to, I don't want to overdo the personality part of it. The problem is they've built the government around his personality. 
So, you know, like it's like it's the Trudeau government. It's always been the Trudeau government. And when he rubs people the wrong way, especially after this long, he really rubs people the wrong way. Harper faced that too. Like governments gain baggage. To his other point, they gain baggage, they gain scandals, and people get tired of them. Every prime minister faces that. And this one, um, if you don't like Trudeau, he's in your face a lot. His exposure has always been disproportionately high compared to other prime ministers. He is always on TV. He is always out in the hustings. The other, I mean, he's a very effective campaigner, very driven. But, you know, with this guy in your face a lot, a lot of the anger goes to him. But I will say this about Nick's point. This is our system, right? It's not a sneaky thing to have a coalition or to have a, a deal in a minority parliament. That's part of our system. It is normal, even if it feels like if you didn't vote for either of these guys, that you got hoodwinked. John in Canada, our world and lives are changing dramatically. People everywhere are angry about it. The political parties and individual Canadians are more divided than ever. I believe Canadian leadership isn't doing a good job leading the country. Fair. Other people, that's John in Canada, other people will say the division is amplified by our phones and social media and we're not that divided. Lisa Raitt is in that camp, I believe, that it gets amplified and people are doing this to grab as much attention as they can. We're going to stick with politics, a different topic. Tom Mulcair joins us after the break to talk about the Quebec election and whether this will be a coronation in Quebec. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today with special guest host, Graham Richardson. Welcome back to the show. Great to have you with us on this Monday. Um, I didn't know about this until producer Sam told me about it. Um, uh, There is a battle raging over a plan in Normandy to bring a new commemorative project to the fore. I'm being careful because it's been slammed as a Disney-style theme park. It's going to be a high-tech, 45-minute immersive show at Normandy. And many people are completely opposed to this. It's going to cost a fair amount, about uh, 38, I think it's 38 euro. Uh, Sorry, 28 euro, 36 Canadian dollars to get in. A lot of the other monuments are are free, of course. Um, And it sounds like the plan, um, they're talking about a wow factor, a show on the beaches of Normandy to tell the story of what took place there. Uh, Tim Cooks, the author of 13 books on Canadian military history, joins us uh, on the line right now. Hi, Tim. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Graham. Good to be on the show. You know, your books, uh, you don't write stuffy history. You write personal history. You write about individuals and you draw people in. Um, I, I don't know what's planned here, but it seems like they are they are uh, trying to be modern and 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 draw as many people in as they can. Um, and it, it sounds like <laughs> the opponents and some of the veterans and some of their families just don't like the sound of it. What 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 is your take on this? Yeah, Graham, it it's a bit perplexing, isn't it? Um, I think most of us would agree it's a good thing to remember. 
to commemorate, to reflect upon the service and sacrifice of the Canadians who landed on Juneau Beach, the Americans and the British as well on that Titanic Day, D-Day, the 6th of June, 1944. It was a day of unbelievable carnage and courage, and the Allies fought their way inland, and of course, the Battle of Normandy unfolded over the next three months, the liberation of the French and the Belgians and the Dutch in 1945. This was a turning point in world history, and we want to remember that. We want to reflect on that as veterans pass away. We've lost all the great war veterans. We're, we're almost down to about 20,000 Canadian Second World War veterans. And yet this new project, uh, an immersive multimedia artistic expression, um, seems to have rubbed some people the wrong way. And I, and I mm. wonder why. I, I suspect, as you've said uh, on the front end there, the commercialization of the past, you know, that will charge for this, that, that has some people um, perhaps um, worried or even thinking it's disrespectful. Perhaps it's the location of it as well. But um, I guess I would say a commemoration is difficult, and commemoration more than 75 years later is difficult. And how do we keep things relevant while also keeping the sacred nature of a space like that? And I, I, I take all that you say there, because, and I'm glad you pointed all of those facts out, uh, because we, it is drifting for a lot of people as we lose veterans. And, it is, yeah. But I, I also understand that in 2022, doing a commemoration of some kind that does not take into account how people consume their media now might be less successful. Um, and, and, and I'm wondering if that's at play as well. Like, I'm thinking about the 9/11, um, the 9/11 museum mm -hmm. the, in, in New York City. Like that stays with me. It's so powerful, and much of it is digital. Much of it is personal stories, but it is digital, and it and it 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 brings home that day in a way that I don't think I don't think many many commemorations have. Mm -hmm. But you know, and and you have to you have to pay to get in, uh, but. Uh, we are talking about something different when we're talking about France and we're talking about D-Day. We are. And, and I think all of us, um, uh, there's a tension here that I think we understand. We want to remember. We want the next generation. We want our kids to know. We understand that uh, it may be through multimedia uh, uh, that they have a better sense of what happened there. The momentous occasions when I taught at Carleton University, almost all of the kids had seen Saving Private Ryan mm -hmm. and were deeply affected by it. But of course, in my case, in my books, The Fight for History, where I argued we in Canada have not done a very good job in telling our story, in telling mm -hmm. our history, in listening to our veterans. I would always say, well, there's a Canadian story here. That's a different thing than what's happening here. I think, um, and it's early days here, but uh, if it's true to the history, if it has veterans and their families involved, if it's historically accurate, I think we would have a better sense maybe that, okay, that this may be a positive thing. If it does slide into commercialism, a Disney World element, um, that, of course, would be, uh, for me at least personally, very negative. Yeah. And so there, there is a tension here. I, I guess the thing, um, 
for us to think about, uh, our listeners, is how do we want to talk about the war experience now that veterans are, are almost all gone? How shall we remember? What is our duty? What is the debt that we owe to them not to forget? Is it something like this? Is it to, in Canada, have our own documentaries and films? Is it to to pay uh, homage and to bear witness on Remembrance Day. There are a lot of ways we can do this. This one is different, and I can see why people are disturbed. There's another element here, Graham, of course, closer to the Canadian beach, Juno Beach, is that there is a development happening there that will eat into part of the beach and the Juno Beach Centre. And I'm far more disturbed about that, that the fact that, that on the Canadian beach, that these developments continue um, but again, not to, on one hand or the other hand, I do understand that people live there. The French people live there. Um, and so there will be this continual tension, I think. Um, and, and it's good that we are talking about it, because mm. I don't think there's an easy answer one way or the other, but we certainly need to be aware of such things. How big is the development? Is it, and it, it's, it, it's near Juneau Beach? It is. It's going to eat into the parking lot of the Juno Beach Centre, which many of your listeners will have visited. It's the amazing museum and memorial to the Canadians there that took so long uh, to be erected and was never erected until veterans took it upon themselves to open it in 2003. And that's a part of our story. And so there's an interesting anecdote of Winston Churchill after the First World War who said we should leave Ypres in Belgium a, a ruins, a ruin to the war. This was, of course, the battlefield of Passchendaele mm -hmm. and John McRae. Of course, it wasn't that, because people have to live there. People need to rebuild. And yet these are sacred spaces that demand that we pay attention and that we speak up, I guess, for the veterans who fought, the next of kin, and perhaps for our very own history. Mm. And I think maybe you're right. The commercial piece of it sounds like what's really set people off and also, you know, allowed them to, like, branding it like a like a theme park that mm -hmm. that's got to be the that's got to be the that's that's a very difficult thing to get out from under it is it is and you you've mentioned the 911 monument and museum the holocaust museum in washington another mm -hmm. very powerful one the Canadian war museum in here in ottawa yes. the imperial war museum the australian war memorial you need to pay to get into these places and yet they they respect the history, I would argue. They, they incorporate the voices of those who served and sacrificed in, in case of war museums, different for the Holocaust Museum. Um, there's a gravitas mm -hmm. to those places. And maybe that's what is missing at the moment here, that feels like it's not a part of it, um, and it's something for us to be aware of. Thanks for this, Tim. And you've got a book coming out, I think, right? I do, on medicine in the First World War, called Lifesavers and Body Snatchers. It'll be out in about two weeks. Thanks. Thanks, Graham. And we will have you back for, to talk about that. Thanks so much, Tim Cook. Thank you. Appreciate this. And we're going to take your calls and texts on this subject, what you know about the plans at Normandy, the multimedia, and a, and a new commemoration that will charge um, more than $30 to get in, and a lot of people in France not thrilled with it. I'm Graham Richardson. This is the Evan Solomon Show. And when we come back, um, we are going to uh, speak with um, the plan to head back to the moon. Uh, Dr. David Saint-Jacques will join us, Canadian astronaut. Uh, we were talking, he was talking today about the launch of Artemis 1. It had to be scrubbed, but we still want to talk to him about what... Uh, 
Canada's role will be in this going forward. It's an exciting time again. People always pay attention. We're talking about going back to the moon. Stay with us. We're back in just a moment. Evan Solomon Show continues today with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Happy Monday, everyone. Glad you're with us. Hope uh, things are going well for you. It's very, very hot where I am. One of those late summer days in Ottawa and southern Ontario where, uh, or eastern Ontario and other parts of the province where it's just like soup out there. Uh, difficult time to be campaigning uh, in the heat, but that is what's happening in Quebec uh, here is Premier Francois Legault launching the election campaign that he looks, uh, you know, in pretty good shape heading in. If there's one thing I learned during the pandemic is to be humble because things change very fast. And what I repeat to my team about everything is don't take anything for granted. Saying all the right things, don't take anything for granted. Tom Mulcair, of course, <laughs> former federal NDP leader and uh, political uh, consultant for CTV News uh, joins us now. Uh, boy, he, he even sounds relaxed. How, how good is it going to be if nothing changes for him? Well, it is going to be easy for Legault if nothing changes. But boy, did he have a lousy launch to his campaign. And we'll mm-hmm. get to that in a minute. He's in a position that's quite similar to the one that Doug Ford was in. Doug Ford had only two big opposition parties. The Greens were nipping at everybody's heels, but they weren't really players yet. But he had an almost perfect split between the NDP that were the official opposition and the liberals at the start of the campaign. The liberals started to slip a bit towards the end, but still it wasn't enough. So Ford was able to just trundle through an easy victory at the finish line. Legault is set to do the same thing. <laughs> he's got about 40% in the polls, something similar to, to where Ford was. Right. But he's got four opposition parties who are splitting the other 60% almost perfectly evenly. And so the Liberals are at 17, Quebec Solidaire, uh, the left-leaning party, is at about 15. The newly resurgent Conservatives are, are coming out of nowhere. And in the Quebec City area, for example, you know that's a, a, at least a dozen seats. Uh, they're close to 20%. They're going to start winning seats up there. Mm. And uh, finally, the, the moribund Parti Québécois that were shared power with the Liberals for the last 50 years... They're toast. They're just finished. They might not even win a single seat, Graham. So it's right? fun to watch. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm what, glad what was, a liberal. Yeah, what was yeah. so bad about his launch? Well, this was the incredible thing. I mean, out of nowhere, he's doing a set-piece launch. He's in front of the Montmorency Falls, if you know those, mm-hmm. that are just upriver from Quebec City, off the island of Orleans. Absolutely magnificent backdrop for this announcement. And out of nowhere, he's, he refers to Dominic Anglade as that woman. That lady, mm-hmm. he won't even say her name. And mm-hmm. so like the journalists who are present there start tweeting right away. This is going to follow him for the rest of the campaign. What might not make it out of the Quebec bubble too much is that Francois Legault's got something of a reputation for being a misogynist. If you look at his treatment of women in his cabinet, uh, any fault, real or imagined by Legault, you get thrown out. And there are about a half a dozen women who have been turfed from his cabinet. Meanwhile, a fellow named Pierre Fitzgibbon has repeatedly broken the ethics laws. And his biggest punishment to date was to have been let out of cabinet for a couple of months and then let back in by the St. Francois Legault. Mm. So people haven't, (laughs) it hasn't escaped public notice that Legault has a very different way of approaching how he disciplines, deals with, and is a colleague with 
women and and with regard to men with, in the house with that been, many though you know, with that many opposition parties is that something that could have a a significant impact or i guess it's difficult to tell well, it's early going. We've mm-hmm. got exactly five weeks to the day today before this thing to roll out. Let me put it to you this way. There is institutional wisdom in the Liberal Party. I mean, they've been around for a long time. They haven't disappeared as the PQ is disappearing. And one of the reasons is their vote is quite concentrated in the greater Montreal area and indeed in the more Anglo and ethnic parts of Montreal, which means that their vote is quite efficient. Quebec Solidaire has got a young leader and he's, you know, he's drawing a lot of young people in, even though it's a sovereignist party, lots of young Anglo federalists will still work with him and be volunteers because they think that he's got the best ideas and they don't really think there's any chance of him actually forming a government. So people are, you know, working with their hearts as, as volunteers with this guy. His name is Gabrielle Nadeau-Dubois. Dominique Anglade, the first woman to head the Quebec Liberal Party, she's of Haitian origin. She has a great personal life story to tell. Her parents were both refugees from the Duvalier regime. Her dad was put in jail by the Duvalier regime. Mm. And she's worked her way up the corporate ladder. She's an engineer. She's a senior business consultant. And she had worked with Francois Legault. She was the president of his party. But when Legault backed a local soccer association that had said, no, this kid is the Sikh boy, is not allowed to play soccer because of his head covering. She just said, you know, my parents would never forgive me if I kept working with this guy. And she went over to the Liberals, was immediately made the minister in charge of the economy and did an outstanding job. So she became the Liberal Party leader. But amongst French-speaking voters, she doesn't get through at all. The, the mm-hmm. most recent polling on the weekend shows them at about 7% with the the French-speaking voters, whereas the English and Allo voters, what we call Allophone people who have a language that is neither French or English, her numbers are still quite strong. So she should be able to hold on to official opposition status, although Quebec Solidaire thinks that they've got a shot at that. And uh, the Conservatives will be winning seats in Quebec City, which is quite a sea change for Quebec politics. And then we might actually see, Graham, the total disappearance of the Parti Québécois. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about that in Quebec City. Is this bigger than what uh, I always look federally, and I know it's different, uh, and I don't understand Quebec nearly as well as you do, obviously. But, but yeah, I, I, I lived, I lived and worked in Quebec City for a long time, and if Quebec likes to boast that it's a distinct society within Canada, I can absolutely tell you that what is called here in Quebec la région de la capitale nationale. So I know you're sitting in Ottawa right now as we speak, and that's our national capital. But in Quebec, when you say national capital, you mean Quebec City. Yes, And the Quebec City region is a distinct society within Quebec. Very different, much less diversity, religious, uh, ethnic, and uh, and linguistic than Montreal, which is a big cosmopolitan North American city, very right. diverse city. So Quebec, you know, there are many who use the word, you know, they say it's a, it's a village, you know, word, word of mouth, things get around. Well, the word of mouth came from a lot of these radio hosts, starting with the lion, King Arthur, on yes. uh, Andre Alcio recently passed. I mean, just a brutal character. You yeah. know, Rush Limbaugh was was twenty years behind these guys, yeah. and uh, and they tremendous the power, right? Tremendous power, oh, un- more so than English power. Canada. Oh yeah, for sure. You've never seen anything like that any in any city with where the radio waves totally dominated public discourse and set the tone for what people were thinking. So this guy who's running the Conservatives, his name is Eric Duhem. He was one of those radio hosts. He's much younger than Altro, but still mm-hmm. very much in the same mold. They actually work together. And so they're looking at him right now. He loves twisting the tail of Francois Legault and his CAC government. He he'll say just about anything because he, he wants to get attention and 
He doesn't care. I mean, his party was nowhere and he figures he's going to get a few seats. So he's going to have fun while he's doing it. So watch him to win several seats, probably the two both seats, both north, mm-hmm. north and south and Quebec City. He's running in showroom riding, which is really uh, suburban Quebec City. So he's got a tone and a way of talking to people in Quebec City, talking about you know the government, what it does and it doesn't do, chopping this and cutting that. He, he's He's got quite a skill and he's going to be fun to watch. All right, Tom. Uh, always great to talk to you, and uh, we will watch this. Too. And uh, so, early missteps by Legault, uh, but he—he's—it's—it's it's a long way out, and uh, he still looks pretty strong. Oh, <laughs> he's supposed to win it in a romp, right? But if he—if he keeps having days like he had on the weekend, it might start getting tougher for him than he was expecting. All right, we'll watch that. Thanks so much, Tom. All the best. Great Take to care, talk to you. That's Bye-bye. Tom Mulcair. Um. Boy, it's funny what what it's funny what things it's funny what gets picked up and what can amplify in in a writ period because it can change as Tom was suggesting in a flash. We'll see if that happens there. I'm Graham Richardson. This is the Evan Solomon Show. We're back after the news. Stay with us. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today with special guest host, Graham Richardson. Welcome back to the show. Great to have you with us on this Monday. Um, I didn't know about this until producer Sam told me about it. Um, uh, There is a battle raging over a plan in Normandy to bring a new commemorative project to the floor. I'm being careful because it's been slammed as a Disney style theme park. It's going to be a high tech 45 minute immersive show at Normandy. And many people are completely opposed to this. It's going to cost a fair amount about uh, 38. I think it's 38 Euro. uh, Sorry, 28 Euro, 36 Canadian dollars to get in. A lot of the other monuments are, are free, of course. Um, and it sounds like the plan, um, they're talking about a wow factor, a show on the beaches of Normandy to tell the story of what took place there. Uh, Tim Cooks, the author of 13 books on Canadian military history, joins us uh, on the line right now. Hi, Tim. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Graham. Good to be on the show. You know, your books, uh, you don't write stuffy history. You write personal history. You write about individuals and you draw people in. Um, I, I don't know what's planned here, but it seems like they are they are uh, trying to be modern and 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 draw as many people in as they can. Um, and it, it sounds like <laughs> the opponents and some of the veterans and some of their families just don't like the sound of it. What 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 is your take on this? Yeah, Graham, it it's a bit perplexing, isn't it? Um, I think most of us would agree it's a good thing to remember to commemorate to reflect upon the service and sacrifice of the Canadians who landed on Juneau Beach, the Americans and the British as well on that Titanic Day, D-Day, the 6th of June, 1944. It was a day of unbelievable carnage and courage, and the Allies fought their way inland, and of course, 
the Battle of Normandy unfolded over the next three months, the liberation of the French and the Belgians and the Dutch in 1945. This was a turning point in world history. And we want to remember that. We want to reflect on that as veterans pass away. We've lost all the great war veterans. We're, we're almost down to about 20,000 Canadian Second World War veterans. And yet this new project, uh, an immersive multimedia artistic expression, um, seems to have rubbed some people the wrong way. And I, and I mm. wonder why. I, I suspect, as you've said uh, on the front end there, the commercialization of the past, you know, that will charge for this, that, that has some people um, perhaps um, worried or even thinking it's disrespectful. Perhaps it's the location of it as well. But um, I guess I would say a commemoration is difficult, and commemoration more than 75 years later is difficult. And how do we keep things relevant while also keeping the sacred nature of a space like that? And I, I, I take all that you say there, because, and I'm glad you pointed all of those facts out, uh, because we, it is drifting for a lot of people as we lose veterans. And, it is, yeah. But I, I also understand that in 2022, doing a commemoration of some kind that does not take into account how people consume their media now might be less successful. Um, and, and, and I'm wondering if that's at play as well. Like, I, I'm thinking about the 9-11, um, the 9-11 Museum mm -hmm. the, in, in New York City. Like, that stays with me. It's so powerful. And much of it is digital. Much of it is personal stories, but it is digital. And it, and it, it, it brings home that day in a way that I don't think, I don't think many, many commemorations have. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and, and you, have to, you have to pay to get in. Uh, but uh, we are talking about something different when we're talking about France and we're talking about D-Day. We are. And I think all of us, um, there's a tension here that I think we understand. We want to remember. We want the next generation. We want our kids to know. We understand that it may be through multimedia uh, that they have a better sense of what happened there. The momentous occasions when I taught at Carleton University, almost all of the kids had seen Saving Private Ryan mm -hmm. and were deeply affected by it. But of course, in my case, in my books, The Fight for History, where I argued we in Canada have not done a very good job in telling our story, in telling mm -hmm. our history, in listening to our veterans. I would always say, well, there's a Canadian story here. That's a different thing than what's happening here. I think, um, and it's early days here, but uh, if it's true to the history, if it has veterans and their families involved, if it's historically accurate, I think we would have a better sense maybe that, okay, that this may be a positive thing. If it does slide into commercialism, a Disney World element, um, that, of course, would be, uh, for me at least personally, very negative. Yeah. And so there, there is a tension here. I, I guess the thing um, for us to think about, uh, our listeners, is how do we want to talk about the war experience now that veterans are, are almost all gone? How shall we remember? What is our duty? What is the debt that we owe to them not to forget? Is it something like this? Is it to, in Canada, have our own documentaries and films? Is it to 
to pay uh, homage and to bear witness on Remembrance Day. There are a lot of ways we can do this. This one is different, and I can see why people are disturbed. There's another element here, Graham, of course, closer to the Canadian beach, Juno Beach, is that there is a development happening there that will eat into part of the beach and the Juno Beach Centre. And I'm far more disturbed about that, that the fact that, that on the Canadian beach, that these developments continue um, but again, not to on one hand or the other hand, I do understand that people live there. The French people live there. Um, and so there will be this continual tension, I think. Um, and, and it's good that we are talking about it because mm. I don't think there's an easy answer one way or the other, but we certainly need to be aware of such things. How big is the development? Is it, and it, it's, it, it's near Juno Beach? It is. It's going to eat into the parking lot of the Juno Beach Center, which many of your listeners will have visited. It's the amazing museum and memorial to the Canadians there that took so long uh, to be erected and was never erected until veterans took it upon themselves to open it in 2003. And that's a part of our story. And so there's an interesting anecdote of Winston Churchill after the First World War who said we should leave Ypres in Belgium a, a ruins, a ruin to the war. This was, of course, the battlefield of Passchendaele mm-hmm. and John McRae. Of course, it wasn't that, because people have to live there. People need to rebuild. And yet these are sacred spaces that demand that we pay attention and that we speak up, I guess, for the veterans who fought, the next of kin, and perhaps for our very own history. Mm. And I think maybe you're right. The commercial piece of it sounds like what's really set people off and also, you know, allowed them to, like, branding it like a like a theme park that mm-hmm. that's got to be the that's got to be the that's that's a very difficult thing to get out from under it is it is and you you've mentioned the 911 monument and museum the holocaust museum in washington another mm-hmm. very powerful one the Canadian war museum in here in ottawa yes. the imperial war museum the australian war memorial you need to pay to get into these places and yet they they respect the history, I would argue. They, they incorporate the voices of those who served and sacrificed in, in case of war museums, different for the Holocaust Museum. Um, there's a gravitas mm-hmm. to those places. And maybe that's what is missing at the moment here, that feels like it's not a part of it, um, and it's something for us to be aware of. Thanks for this, Tim. And you've got a book coming out, I think, right? I do, on medicine in the First World War, called Lifesavers and Body Snatchers. It'll be out in about two weeks. Thanks. Thanks and, very much. And we will have you back for, to talk about that. Thanks so much, Tim Cook. Thank you. Appreciate this. And we're going to take your calls and texts on this subject, what you know about the plans at Normandy, the multimedia, and a, and a new commemoration that will charge um, more than $30 to get in, and a lot of people in France not thrilled with it. I'm Graham Richardson. This is the Evan Solomon Show. And when we come back, um, we are going to uh, speak with um, the plan to head back to the moon. Uh, Dr. David Saint-Jacques will join us, a Canadian astronaut. Uh, we were talking, he was talking today about the launch of Artemis 1. It had to be scrubbed, but we still want to talk to him about what uh, Canada's role will be in this going forward it's an exciting time again people always pay attention we're talking about going back to the moon stay with us we're back in just a moment
It's the Evan Solomon Show with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. This is Artemis Launch Control with an update. Launch Director Charlie Blackwell-Thompson has called a scrub for today. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. That was the scrub of the launch of a new moon rocket scheduled to take flight today uh, with dummies aboard, no humans aboard, but uh, they are still, it's not a total scrub. Um, David Saint-Jacques is a Canadian astronaut, joins us on the line. Uh, always disappointing when this kind of thing happens. David, thanks so much for joining us. Um, if people, uh, tell us about Tell us about this mission generally and, and why so much attention is being paid to it. Uh, eventually, humans uh, will be aboard and will be going back to the moon. Hey, Graham. Yes, indeed. What a, what a morning. A lot, of, uh, a, lot of, a lot of tension in the air, a lot <laughs> of excitement, and then no. Disappointment, yeah. Well, but you know... That's space, right? It's space. I mean, on the one hand, yeah, the, the little boy in me was disappointed to not see this giant rocket launch. But on the other hand, the sober engineer in me was kind of relieved that yeah. someone did their job, actually, yeah. and found out the problem before it was too late. Uh, so next time, there's always next time. And the, that's one thing we've learned from the history of spaceflight is it is unforgiving. Yes. Unforgiving. And we've got to cross our T's and dust our I's and make sure when we go, it's because we have a really high confidence. So today there was a problem that could not be resolved in time. Uh, they're going to go to the bottom of it and find the root cause. There was an issue with one of the four main engines of the, of the rocket, so not a small issue. Uh, and the next uh, window that opens is on Friday, uh, shortly before 1 p.m. Uh, Eastern time. So uh, hopefully we're ready in time to try again. Otherwise, it'll be the, the next window. These are test flights. That's the important thing to remember. This is the first in a series of missions, the Artemis program. Artemis 1, uh, this uncrewed test flights with the whole stack. The first time we assembled this giant rocket together with the spacecraft, with mannequins on board uh, to sort of uh, test the effects on the, on the human body, to go all the way to the moon and come back at these incredible speeds, survive reentry and then splash down. All of this has never been done on this system, so it's a giant test, and a lot of things have to go just right for it to be a, a success. So, unfortunately, not today, but it's for good reason. And and they will orbit the moon, or this if this was to go today, the plan for the first one is, if I have this right, is to orbit the moon and then splash down. Is that right? That is correct. The plan is to go uh, kind of a giant figure eight, you know, leave the Earth and loop around the moon uh, once, and then come back to Earth. All of that will take uh, uh, about 40 days or so um, because we're going on a very big orbit uh, around the moon. And so plenty of time to test all the systems so that when we move on to Artemis II, the first crewed mission, we can do so with high confidence uh, that it's safe for the astronauts. And it's going to be particularly important for us here in Canada because on Artemis II, the first crewed mission of this new system, there will be a Canadian Space Agency astronaut. And so that will be a very special day for Canada, just mm -hmm. like you know the Apollo generation all remember where they were when Neil Armstrong uh, landed, uh, you know, set foot on the moon. I think all Canadians are going to remember where they were when Artemis II launched uh, with the Canadian on board. And when they get humans on Artemis II, will they, will they land on the moon or orbit it first and then the next launch will land on the moon? 
That is correct. You are correct. Artemis 2 is going to be similar to Apollo 8 uh, for the space buffs among your listeners. So mm-hmm. kind of the first uh, human uh, you know, human launch uh, with just a kind of a reconnaissance going around the moon uh, and then uh, do a couple of laps over there and then come back. Uh, starting with Artemis 3, uh, there will be uh, uh, landings on the moon and we will build a, a space station around the moon. That's another part, the key part that Canada plays. We're going to provide... Canada is going to provide a robotic arm uh, for that uh, moon station uh, that's going to be kind of an advanced, you know, like a, a base camp uh, mm-hmm. for uh, sorties uh, on the moon. Uh, so, and then there's going to be a series of missions uh, to this gateway, it's called, this refuge, and then to the lunar surface. All of that, the big picture is so we can kind of go back to the moon to stay this time, colonize it if you want, uh, and also kind of practice all the life support, the autonomous healthcare, the food production, the navigation, the propulsion, everything we need to then fathom going to Mars. Mm. That's really the big dream on the more distant horizon. Uh, And, you know, who knows? I think the the people who will go to Mars, I think they're born right now. Wow. Maybe they're kids. (laughs) But uh, there's a lot of work to do before we can send humans with confidence uh, all the way out there. Because... And and the difference for those who are not space buffs, the difference between going to the moon and going to Mars is uh, extraordinary. So, uh, yes. So when you are on the moon, right, mm-hmm. the Earth looks like the moon, basically. It's about that size. It's kind of three, four times the size of the moon in the sky. Mm-hmm. When you are on Mars, the Earth looks like Mars looks like from the Earth. It looks like a star. Slightly wow. pale blue dot in the sky. Hard to find among the stars. That is, it's a thousand times further than the moon. Uh, it's, a, it's another, so it's as if for a couple of decades now with the International Space Station, we've been developing all the technologies we need uh, to survive in space, but it's like we were camping in our backyard at home. Mm-hmm. And now we're going to go to the, the kind of the hill, maybe an hour drive away from <laughs> home. That's the moon. Yeah. You can still come back if it's really bad, but it's far away. You better be autonomous. And, but the big dream, all that is to get our gear ready so we can go to Everest. So uh, we, yeah. we know, like the reason, I've read the reason we haven't gone back to the moon is there's not much to learn about the moon. And it's interesting that this whole discussion has been about... Um, not going to the moon, but it's almost like a practice uh, and and a, a dry run to do something much bigger, which we have never done before, which is Mars. Is that a fair yeah. characterization? Yeah, that is. A, I mean, there are definitely a lot of unresolved scientific questions that uh, on the moon. The moon is the sister to the Earth, so mm-hmm. a lot of the, we a lot that we most of what we know about the history of the formation of the solar system and the Earth herself comes from actually moon geology uh, from the Apollo era. So there's much more to learn there. There's the, uh, you know, there's the prospect for mining some rare, uh, rare things on the moon and also to develop the techniques of uh, in situ resource utilization, we call. So basically find ice on the moon and turn it into oxygen, water, and rocket fuel to be an autonomous base because we will need that uh, for Mars. Mm. So there is, uh, there's lots to do there uh, on the moon. Definitely some scientific questions that uh, will remain to be answered uh, with modern-day technology. With, uh, um, and uh, we're going back 
kind of, I want to say to colonize the moon, if you want to stay for good. This mm. is not just like two weeks adventure trips, come back and never come back. No, this, we're, gonna, we're going there to stay. And mm. it's the next step in our ambition to you know, become a spacefaring species uh, where we can confidently set up camp uh, on another celestial body. And, and all of that, I think, you have to remember, is that's a fantastic, there's two fantastic things about space exploration, I find. First, it's a great engine of collaboration, mm-hmm. uh, because these are all international projects. And it's also a great engine of innovation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is so much we have learned uh, with, if you want, the excuse of going to space uh, that we then use every day on Earth afterwards. But it's as if the rigors because it's so cool, space exploration, the smartest engineers want to work on it, and then they scratch their heads a bit harder because it's a bit more difficult than on Earth. But then that kind of nudges us, triggers us to come up with solutions uh, that then we all benefit from on Earth, but maybe would have never kind of looked that way had it not been for the, the reason of a space exploration. So it's kind of a, yeah. you know, it's like a, it's a great, uh, it's a great reason to kind of get together, work together, and figure out solutions to, to all these problems. And I think that's the kind of the magic of, uh, of space exploration. And over and over again, it keeps operating that way. It's also very, very cool to it's say you're cool, going to go to the moon. Inspiring. Like, that's just And there great. will be, you know what's going to be different from Apollo this mm. time with the, the, the Artemis mission? There's going to be, you know, dozens of high-definition, wide-angle cameras everywhere on the yes. spacecraft. Yeah. Amazing We're pictures. We're all going to go to the moon together. We're all going to pop, take, take a walk on the moon and look at an Earth rise, uh, thanks to those, uh, to those, all those kind of PR equipment, basically, that's going to be uh, on the mission. David, thanks so much for your time. We look forward to the launch, hopefully on Friday. Thank you. Yeah, see you on Friday. Hopefully the engineers can iron it out by then. Otherwise, uh, there's a series of launch windows Uh, in the future. Eventually, we'll make it work. Thank you, sir. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Sitting in for Evan, here's Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson in for Evan Solomon. Uh, earlier in the show, and we've been getting a lot of response, your response at um, uh, on, on the issue on the Christian Freeland situation in Grand Prairie. Um, we're we're going to have some of those. We're going to read some of those out now, and then I, I think we're going to move on. Like, I, I know a lot of people accuse the media of just doing these things to death, but it is, you know, it's a significant thing uh, what happened on Friday. Um, it's only Monday. And, uh, so, uh, if you're fatigued, I understand, but we, we, we want to get to some of your texts cause we've got, we've been getting quite a lot. We also want your calls. 1-855-633-1010. 1-855-633-1010. Text us at 71010. Some of the texts we've been getting here in Ottawa, if Trudeau wasn't so divisive and treated certain segments of the population as second class citizens, especially white males, then perhaps all this anger wouldn't be out there. It's the same thing happening in the U S with their left leaning politicians. That's from Dan. I, I'm not sure about that, Dan. I'm really not sure about that. I, I get, I understand that that th- th- there is there is economic uncertainty like we have not seen in my lifetime. I'm 52 years old. Um, the, the, the pandemic upset, um, turned a lot of things economically upside down, um, uh, shut down the entire world economy. So you don't do that and just have everybody whistle along like everything's normal. Everything is not normal. And we're going to be having 
many, many months and perhaps years of ripple effects from the pandemic. Um, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not convinced that this is a put down of white men um, that the prime minister's engaging in on purpose. That's why white men generally, generally seem to be angry with him and his party. Um, I, I, I think that, I think that this is a government that goes where it can win, which a lot of governments do and where it can win and where it can hold power is in cities. And a lot of people in cities, particularly in the Eastern part of the country, um, are, are fine with gun bans, for instance. They, they can't understand why people in the West, people in rural areas, have a problem with, uh, with giving up and their guns, like not having guns. They, they, they see that issue completely differently. They see it through a crime prism, and many people in the West see it as through a freedom prison. You're, you're taking something away from me that my family and my uh, has been going on for generations uh, because of something someone else is doing, not what I'm doing. Um, I think the gun example is a is a good example of the division in the country um, over and and this particular government's approach um, and and how that that plays in in other uh, in other parts of the country. Another text. Um, I think we should thank our lucky stars that it is words being thrown at our politicians, but being in politics, you can expect people will be upset. Let us really start to worry if someone tries to hurt a politician. Uh, Pauline Marwa. Uh, thanks, Pauline. Uh, she mentions JFK and many more. I will point out, I will point out that um, the prime minister in two election campaigns ago, not this last one, uh, had to uh, delay for several hours and came on stage with a bulletproof vest under his suit. Um, this was discovered later. This was in the Toronto area. Uh, I believe it was in Scarborough. It might have been in Etobicoke in Toronto area. Um, he also, we all know the stones being thrown at him. Uh, so I, I'm not so sure it's just words right now. Um, but I take your point. It's not nearly as, as um, it's, it's not nearly as perhaps violent as we've seen in the United States in the 1960s. Graham, I don't know if you've lived anywhere else. I worked in Edmonton. It's the most racist I've ever seen in Canada. I was harassed because my name is French. And I was from Ontario. They called me Trudeau lover. They complained to me I was hiring Muslims. The West is the problem. That's uh, Diane in Ottawa. Diane, I could not uh, disagree with you more. Um, I don't know what part of Edmonton you were in, but uh, Northern Alberta, in particular Edmonton, has a very large, significant Francophone population. It is a very diverse city. I lived there for four years, and I lived in Calgary for four years, and my family is... My wife's side of the family is still in Alberta, and I, I, I appreciate that there are uh, people with right-wing views there, in some cases extreme right-wing views there. Ask Jason Kenney. Uh, they are here too, um, and that part of the country is the most conservative part of the country. Sorry you went through that. I just I don't accept that Edmonton's racist. I'm sorry. I just don't accept that. Um, Nathan in Thornhill is on the line about what Christopher Freeland faced. Um, uh, Nathan, t 
Tell me about what you what you thought when you saw that video. What's your what's your reaction to it? Well, I'm Jewish, and I said, "There's a guy that knows something about history," because a lot of people don't know Christia Freeland's grandfather was a Nazi propagandist. He was too okay, and that's a fact. That's a historical fact. Uh, but she's not her grandfather, whether that's a fact or not. So she deserved what she got. Is that what you're saying? She got yelled at and sticks and stones. No, I, I disagree. Bones. I disagree. Like, she, she was yelled at and called horrendous names by a man who backed her entire entourage into the elevator. And so I don't, I don't accept that that was just yelling. An elevator and a gas chamber are two different things, aren't they? Pardon me? An elevator and a gas chamber are two different things. Okay. That's Nathan in Thornhill. Um, thanks for the call. Um... Uh, regardless of uh, what he said about Christian Freeland's uh, grandfather or whatever he was saying about that, I mean, uh, I guess his point is is that people deserve, she deserved what she got because of that. I don't know. I don't know. Good afternoon, another texture. The behavior towards the deputy prime minister was outrageous. However, people have been pushed to the edge by COVID, the economy and the government's actions. Outrageous, but perhaps understandable DB in London. Fair point. We are not in a normal time. When you shut down the world's economy, when you close schools, when you remove jobs, even with government support, and many got more government support than other, other people, you are going to have an instant you're going to have instability and you're going to have this kind of thing happening for months to come. I guess my question is, if there was no pandemic, it's hard, it's hard to think about this, but would this kind of behavior be happening more um, than it has in previous years? I believe we had Lisa Radon, the former conservative cabinet minister. I believe she would say yes. She believes, driven by social media, the desire to get clicks and attention, the amplification of this kind of behavior, and the digitization of our political discourse, all plays a massive role. A massive role. The amount of pain committed by this liberal government is beyond comprehension. And what you don't understand is that the attack is continuing. So you reap what you sow, good and bad, wake up, you play with the bull, sometimes you get the horns. So again, this texter believes that Christian Freeland deserves that because of the policies that her government brings in. That, 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 that seems to be what some people are saying here, that, that because they don't like, uh, whether it's the vaccine mandates, whether it's the... Um, the arrive can app now, whether it was the closures that went on for too long because we weren't like the Americans or whether it was whatever, they deserve it. And I'm sorry. I like, I don't think anybody deserves that. I don't think anybody deserves that. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't care if they're, you know, like, like on the other end of the spectrum, there's Maxime Bernier. If a bunch of, uh, let's say union activists or left-wing people cornered Maxine Bernier like that and started screaming at him and telling him to get out of their country. Sorry, that's not on. That's not, that's not, 
that's not acceptable behavior, regardless of who you are. I'm Graham Richardson. This is The Evan Solomon Show. We'll wrap up the show when we come back. Stay with us. Evan Solomon Show continues today with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. We're lightening up here. We're lightening up. Warning. Um, this is a great story on a Monday, especially on a Monday after talking about heavy stuff for a while. Dwayne Hansen, he has hollowed out an 846-pound pumpkin and he is on his way down the Missouri River, or he has finished it. Uh, August 27th. It's 38 miles in a hollowed-out pumpkin. Dwayne joins me on the line. You're trying to break a record, Dwayne. Are, are you in the pumpkin now, or are you finished? No, no, no. I did that Saturday. Nice. How did it go? Yeah. Uh, as well as could be expected. <laughs> um, uh, there's a lot of... There was some luck involved, and uh, I don't know. Uh, it could have been a lot worse, put it that way. I made it. I, said that way, I made it 28 miles. So. That is not a small distance in a hollowed-out pumpkin. So, yeah. How, how long did it take you to do it? Well, I originally estimated 8 to 10 hours at 4 miles an hour, and uh, the river was going 3.5 miles an hour, and it took me 12 hours. Wow. It was a long 12 hours sitting in a pumpkin. Did so. the, did, well, actually, and the other thing, like, why on earth did you do this? Is well, this something to do? No. Um, I've been growing, trying to grow giant pumpkins for about 10 years, and it's really hard to do here in Nebraska because it's so hot. And uh, I decided to go to Portland, Oregon to a three day growing, pumpkin growing seminar that they have, you know, once a year. It's kind of a pumpkin thing. Yeah. And I met a, a lady there that had the world's record floating down a river in a giant pumpkin, 25 or 25 miles or something like that. And and uh, I was talking to her. I asked her a bunch of questions, and I decided that's what I'm going to do one day. And I finally got a pumpkin big enough this year to do it. So at so. the pumpkin seminar on growing big pumpkins, you met someone who had done this, and you wanted to beat the record. That's that's, that's how it started. So I didn't know there was such a thing as floating a pumpkin down the river. So I what? Thought, are, wow, that's cool. I'll do that. Yeah. What What were the biggest challenges? Like, how fast is the Missouri River? Is it Is it pretty quick? Um, right now it is flowing three and a half miles an hour. It has been faster, but it's pretty low right now. We, uh, you know, it's pretty dry, I guess. But uh, I would have liked to see four or five miles an hour. It doesn't take so long. So you're so, paddling, obviously you're paddling with the current. Were you paddling or are you paddling, just floating? I was, no, I had kayak paddles. I I paddled with the current. I'd, I'd always have to stay in the current. I'd have to cross the river. Oh, I'd probably cross the river 10 times to, to get back into the current. So the currents, current um, goes from side to side as you go around the curves. Tell me about the pumpkin slash canoe that you grew to be able to do this. How How did, how big was it? Uh, 846 pounds. Wow. I, which is pretty good. I mean, that's not a monster for as far as pumpkins go, but it's 
that's big enough to go. Um, I killed it early. I could have probably got to a thousand pounds this year, but I wanted to do this while it was still warm out. Uh, otherwise I'd freeze to death out there on the river cause it gets, starts getting kind of chilly at September. So, yeah. And, and, and you're going to get wet. You're going to get wet. That's the other thing I was going to ask you. Wet. So, so, so for that size pumpkin, you're sitting in it. How big are you? Like, are you, are you, uh, I'm a hundred, 170 pounds. Okay. And I, it, it was a tight fit. It was a tight fit. Uh, I think so. I mean, you don't have a lot of room. Right. There's was, not a lot of room. Was balance an issue? Very much. That was that's the biggest issue with the whole thing. Uh, it's like sitting in a cork, and if you move or if your boat waves hit you, you could tip over any minute and and drown your pumpkin. Right. I think that pumpkin would float, but uh, there's it would have been a major issue, and I might have had to give up or something. I don't know. Yeah. And we had two two rainstorms come through. The first one. Uh, was 10 miles north of where I wanted to get out, probably. Just poured on me. That only lasted a little while. And that was kind of cold. And then about 5, 10, 20 minutes later, another one poured on me. Or I don't know how long it was, but that was the only two kind of downfalls, really. Yeah. But you just keep going. At that moment, did you ever think, what am I doing this for? You ever have no, any of those moments? That. No, no, I didn't. Because I've been wanting to do this for five years. You know, it's, it's. Uh, I don't know what you call it. I, I guess I'm hard headed or something. I don't uh, know. Obsessed? Yeah, but, like you're obsessed yeah, with. Yeah, uh, sure, yeah. sure. That's good. If you would ask my wife; she would tell you that I'm obsessed with giant pumpkins. <laughs> <laughs> and and so you're you're grow you're attempting to grow. You're interested in growing them. So when did you make this decision, like from the time you decided to do it to the time you did it? How long did it take? Oh, you you mean you mean from Portland? Yeah, like like out? getting the idea of floating in a pumpkin down a river to actually doing it and breaking a record. I think that was about five years ago when I was in Portland, Oregon. Okay. I think. I'd have yeah. to look back. I don't remember. But it was four or five years ago. Yeah, yeah. Well... Congratulations! Now it is it is yep, a record you've you. been you've been certified. Is it is it Guinness? Well, okay. Now I I tell everybody uh, until they certify my documentation, which there's a lot of documentation, a lot of it, and I have a, my sister and my daughter both were were documenting stuff on this, and I think we probably have twice as much much documentation as we probably need. So I'm fairly confident that it will go through when so and how, were they documenting like on the shore were you using gps everything 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 yeah, everything uh, uh gps to measure your miles and i had to have it on me in the river right and uh i have witnesses see me get in the river like uh there was two media people in bellevue nebraska and you know they're like they work for the city so they're kind of official people. They yeah. want official people. There was a county sheriff in Nebraska City that signed the papers, and there might be somebody else. There's a news person that signed the papers, uh, Dan Swanson. I've got I've got more than enough, I believe. And okay. A bad question here. A b- yeah. You might have been asked this before. You're a blunt guy. Uh, nature breaks. How did you? What, what did you do? I I took two, um, and one of them one of them was. 
a bad one because I got stuck on a sandbar with a pumpkin. It took me about <laughs> 10 minutes to get off the damn sandbar. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. And, you know, I, I asked the lady in Portland, I said, is it legal to drink beer? She goes, yes. I'm like, cool. But the cooler I was sitting on, um, I wasn't thinking very far ahead. The cooler was um, a tall cooler. Well, I call it tall. It was about a foot, uh, foot yeah. and a half high. And I only had about four or five beers in there. And if you lift the, if you got to lift the lid up, I got to stand up. Yeah. You don't stand up in a pumpkin. No. Wow. Uh-huh. So, so that's the dilemma. Yeah. You got cold beer and to I get it. on it and I can't have any. You can't have any. Wow. Yeah. And my boy is running the boat and he only gave me like one every three or four hours because he, he was in charge then. See, <laughs> <laughs> he was looking out for my best interest. Okay. So I don't blame him. But he had control then, so, yeah. All right. Dwayne, congratulations. <laughs> Thanks for joining you us. You bet. Thank All you. right. There you go. Everything you need to know about floating in a pumpkin down a river. I'm Graham Richardson. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Thanks for being here. We'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>